Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God became a garden plant. Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havah, where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The second passage comes from Revelation 21. You can't miss it. It's the last book of the Bible. And we're reading the whole chapter, verse 20, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, filled with one of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away into spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, 
each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its Lamb is the Lamb. But by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've brought us here together today as a church of those uh, who have their names written in the book of life, uh, as well as of those who are visiting and exploring uh, who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation, for the, the wonderful vision that you showed to the Apostle John, which he wrote down, which we have before us today. We thank you for this beautiful chapter, Revelation 21, a picture of heaven, the new creation, the new heaven and earth. Help us to, to understand, but not just to understand, but to, to let it really seep into our, not our minds and hearts that it might impact us today, that the future reality that we have to look forward to will bring us the, the comfort, will bring us trust and perseverance today. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is heaven like? Uh, I wonder whether you've ever thought about that question, like, what is heaven like? And I'm sure we have, uh, if we've been around church in any length of time, or you've got any kind of spiritual kind of sensitivities, I'm sure you would have wondered what heaven's like. And perhaps maybe you've got children, and, and they would ask, right, what is heaven like? Uh, I teach scripture uh, in primary school in Chapel Hill, uh, and uh, the kids often do ask that during the Q&A sessions that I have every year. They'll ask about heaven. Now, how would you answer that question? Or how have you answered that question in the past? Perhaps, you know, you um and ah a bit, uh, trying to figure out what is it that I'm going to draw on, that I'm going to explain. Uh, and maybe the first images that come into your mind are, are kids uh, or children's Bibles and the pictures that you see there, and you talk about that. Or perhaps the pictures of Revelation 21 come to mind, and you try and explain Revelation 21. Uh, I wonder what's the mental picture of heaven that you have in your mind. Uh, I'm pretty sure you have one. Now, when you have this mental picture, what are the emotions that are attached to it? Uh, does it seem like a boring place? Uh, the verse that I used to remember growing up was that they would be singing all the time, 24-7. And I didn't like singing, so that sounded like a pretty boring thing to do, to be singing forever for all eternity. Or does it seem like a very exciting place for you, right? Uh, is heaven in your imagination about what you will do, about what you will get to have and what you get to enjoy forever? Um, what is your heaven like? What is, this, what is it centered around? And I wonder, does your picture of heaven have any impact on your day-to-day -day life? Besides the time when you do read about heaven in a kid's children's book or, or Bible or when it comes up in a TV show or movie, do you ever think about heaven? Um, the last time that you felt sorrow and the pains of life, did you ever think about heaven in order to draw comfort? Uh, the last time maybe you struggled with your faith, you had doubts, did you ever think about heaven for you to build your trust in what the Bible has to say? In your struggle to live for Jesus and to obey Him and to serve Him, did you ever think about heaven? Did it make you persevere and, and want to conquer? You see, the, the answer to all these questions depends, doesn't it, on your view of heaven. If your view of heaven is, is small and weak, uh, and anemic, well, it's not going to impact your day-to-day -day life. <clears throat> it's only a view of heaven which is big, where, where God is at the very center, where, where heaven to you is this great and glorious place. Will it then have any real impact on our day-to-day -day life? It's only this huge view of heaven where you will be able to draw comfort in your current sufferings, that you will be able to grow your trust in God and the Bible. Uh, when you doubt. It's only this view of heaven that will help you to persevere to the end in living for Jesus, if this end goal is really that awesome. Now, with that in mind then, let's dive into this wonderful chapter of the Bible, right? Revelation 21, starting at verse 1. 
<clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. <clears throat> the first thing we need to see is that heaven, as we normally would call heaven, which is this paradise place at the end of life, is actually a world, isn't it? It's a creation. Uh, heaven and earth is the Bible's way of describing the creation, right? The world that we live in. Um, heaven, then, as we see in verse 1 and 2, is a renewed creation, right? A new heaven and a new earth. The old creation will be done away with and a brand new one replaces it. You know how sometimes in life we have things that we want to fix because they are valuable to us uh, and it's cost-effective and it's easy to fix? But then there are other things which are just gone, right? Uh, for instance, maybe a few weeks ago, if you had driven your car into the waters of the floods, all right, and the water had seeped into every part of the engine and to the interior, well, it's too broken to fix, isn't it? You just throw it out and you buy a new one. If your house were to, to have the water seep into the foundations and into the flooring and into the carpets, well, you, you probably have to tear it down and, and begin again, right? That's just kind of what's happening with our world. We all know and experience this world with all of its brokenness that isn't just superficial and easy to fix. It's broken to the very core, to the very foundation, and, and nothing less than a total renewal is needed right, for this world to be fixed. And we know this. God knows this, and this is what God promises that He will do. And so God reveals to John this vision of a world that is gloriously renewed. And in this new world... There is this detail, there will be no sea. For those of you who like going on cruises, which you probably won't anymore in the COVID world, uh, for those of you who like going fishing in the sea or whatever, well, maybe you'd be sad there's no sea. But you see, the sea in, in the Jewish mindset is a place of chaos. It's a place of chaos and mass and destruction. We also have seen the sea a few chapters ago in Revelation 13 and 14, that the sea is where the beast of Satan rises out of. The beast that comes out right, to go to war against God's people, against Jesus, is the, is the force of evil that came out of the sea. And so this new creation with, without a sea will be a place without the chaos of evil. Now into this new creation, then John sees a holy city coming out down from heaven, right, a new Jerusalem. Now this is where it gets a bit confusing, isn't it? Uh, in the Bible, heaven, the singular word heaven means where God dwells. Heaven and earth is creation. So out of heaven, out of where God dwells, comes this new city, the new Jerusalem. But strangely enough, in verse 2, this city is also called a bride. <clears throat> so it's all this imagery, isn't it? It's a reminder, once again, for us, when we read Revelation, all the visions and imagery, that we don't take it too literalistically. Right? There are images piled upon each other to convey a message, a meaning. So we've got this city, and we've got this bride smashed together. Now, Jerusalem was and is, first and foremost, the city of God, isn't it? It's, a famous, it's famously known for that, the city of God. Uh, in the Old Testament, it had the pride of place, right? It's, in a way, the center of the world. Why? Because it was God's city, right? He had chosen this nation. He had chosen this city to put his dwelling place in there. He had caused this beautiful temple to be built there where he put his glory into it, right? It was the center of Israel, the center of the world, uh, it was meant to be, Jerusalem as a city was meant to be this beacon of light and hope to the nations. The intent was that the nations would flock to Jerusalem to come to God. But as we know in the Old Testament and in history, Jerusalem failed to do what it was supposed to do. But now here in this vision, the new Jerusalem is established. Jer Jerusalem as it should have been, right? God's city where God dwells with his people. And this is why the city also looks like a bride that's adorned for her husband. If you were here two weeks ago, you would have heard about the bride in Revelation 19. Right? The bride is a picture of the people of God who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. The bride and the groom is a picture of this intimate union of deep connection between God and the people that can never be broken. And so the city of God, smashed together with the bride of the Lamb, is a picture of God and His people. And this is exactly what John is told as we go from vision to voice, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice 
from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. You see, the new creation is a place where God dwells with his people. Where God dwells with his people. Now, this word dwell is a technical word that literally means tabernacle. Right? Tabernacle. <clears throat> if you were familiar with the tabernacle, it's, in, uh, it's something that was built in the Old Testament, a little tent, really, actually. Uh, when the people of God were made as the people of God, Israel, coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, uh, God made this temple, uh, got this, sorry, this tent, this tabernacle to be built because God really wanted to dwell among his people. He wanted to be with them as they traveled to the promised land. But because God is a holy God, he couldn't just dwell with them openly. He put his glory into this tabernacle which followed them around. Now in the new creation, God himself will be the tabernacle. Right? God will tabernacle, will dwell with them, but in a much greater way, as we'll come to hear about a bit later on in this chapter. Now, for, for now, though, what John is trying to hammer home is a very clear point about heaven. God is the central part of what makes heaven, heaven. Right? The only reason heaven is heaven is because God is there. Right? That is absolutely key. God will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Can you see the emphasis right, in verse 3? Now, last week, Steve mentioned the TV show, The Good Place. Uh, it's a show about four strangers who wake up one day and they realize that they have died and be welcomed into this place called The Good Place, right, which is this show's heaven. Now, without giving too much away about the show, uh, when these four characters uh, are in The Good Place, uh, they discover that things get eventually quite boring, right? And in this place, long enough, it gets quite boring, uh, because uh, as they spend eternity there, and a few episodes explores this, uh, they get to experience every human emotion, uh, get to engage in every human fantasy, they get to do all that they wanted to do, whenever they wanted to do, they get to read all of the books, watch all the shows, right, and, and go off all the travels, and no pleasure right, was withheld from them. And explores this in the show of, uh, over a few episodes, and, and eventually, the good place in the show becomes incredibly boring. Incredibly boring, right? Mind-numbingly boring for these four characters, doing the same things, even though it was self-indulgent, even though it was pleasurable, same things over and over again. Now, remember, the good place show is a place that is without God, right? It's a, it's a heaven that is without God. It's a secularist humanist heaven. So it's kind of refreshing to hear this secular human honesty. If eternity is about us and about our pleasures, if the center of heaven is us and our desires, it is meaningless. Go and read Ecclesiastes if you're feeling very happy one day, right? Because that will bring you down. It's, it's exactly the same point. Right? If, 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 if reality, if, if creation, if life is about us and our desires, it is meaningless. This is the tragedy right, of a secularist, humanist heaven that is without God. You see, here in Revelation, John hears something completely different. The good place is actually about God, about being with God. Because God right, is the only being who can enthrall us for all of eternity. Because God is the only being who can fill our hearts right, to overflowing forever. God is the only being whose glory is so expansive and so deep and so rich that it captivates us forever. And if that doesn't sound true to you, it's because you haven't understood who God is yet, right? But if you really get who God, God is, then He's the only one who can capture and captivate us like this forever. And it's only because God dwells with us in heaven, in His new creation, can the words of verse 4 be true. Right, look at verse 4. It's one of those very famous verses. Our experience of eternity can really be one without tears, without death, without mourning, without crying, without pain, because God 
has dealt with all the brokenness and sin and evil that causes all these things. You see, brokenness and evil and sin, they belong to this creation, the old heaven and the old earth. It is a world that has lived in rejection and rebellion against God. It's a world that has largely kicked God out and said, we don't want you here. And that's why this world is the way that it is. And heaven is completely different because God is there, completely and wholly, in the new creation where God is, where God is wholly present, where God dwells with His people. God will personally then be able to reach out to every single one of us to wipe away our tears, to heal all that is broken, to fix all that has gone wrong. Verse 5a, Behold, God says, I have made all things new. Right? All is, is gone. All that is part of it is gone because I have made all things new, God says. Now, I hope you know very clearly how God has done this. Right? He doesn't expand it here, but I hope you've been around long enough to be able to know how God has done this. Right? How is the, the holy God able now to dwell with His people without having to be separated off into a, a, a tent or a temple? How is it uh, that sin and death that causes all this suffering uh, is defeated. Uh, actually, before I keep going, I'm freezing up here and I can start seeing people also like starting to freeze here. Oh, is it possible to... Is that right? People cold? Yes. Uh, the good place is starting to feel like cold place. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we can dial it down a little bit or something. All right. Now I'll give you a mental break for a bit. That's good. All right, first world problems, isn't it? Too cold, right? Too hot. Okay. How is it that a holy God is able to dwell with his people right, without having to, to put himself into a tent or temple for our sake? Right, how is it that sin and death that causes all of this pain and suffering is defeated? Well, the answer is the Christian gospel. It is the good news that the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has come to take away the sins of the world through his sacrificial death on the cross, he wipes away sin. Through his resurrection from the dead back to life, he defeats death. If the gospel is something that you, you're familiar with or that you know about or that you fully understand, please come and speak to me or the friend that brought you because it is understanding and receiving the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ right, that brings us to this new creation. Anyway, the angel goes on, as we read on in verse 5, to tell John, right, write this down, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, these amazing, perhaps scarcely believable promises uh, are to be written down by John so they can be communicated right, to the churches and to the world that they might come to know and believe right, in, in heaven and in how to get there. Now, these words are not some fairy tale ending right, that, is, that is steeped in fiction and legend. Now, these promises of the new creation with God and with such absolute goodness is true. Like the angel, God insists on this. So write these things down so that people will know and, and believe and live by it. Uh, comedian Bill Burr, and you can tell this is where the sermon is written by Steve because I would never use these kind of illustrations. It's a really good one, actually. I like this one. Comedian Bill Burr is no fan of the church and Christianity. Uh, he, visited church, he visited church once uh, and he reflected on it. Uh, when I go to church... I can't get past the fact that I'm just listening to some guy. That's just some dude. Why would you listen to another human being tell you where you're going to go when you die? It's just like, dude, have you ever been dead? No? Great. So wouldn't it be safe to assume that you wouldn't have the slightest idea what you're talking about, about life after death? Bilbo has a point, doesn't he? Why should you listen to me? Or Steve, if you were preaching this sermon, or any other preacher or pastor, tell you about heaven, about what's going to happen after you die, unless we've died and come back alive. Well, we haven't, but Jesus has, isn't he? Jesus has. These are the words of Jesus. Go back to Revelation 1, verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right, it's a revelation by Jesus, about Jesus, the one who died and came back to life. But even more than that, as we read Revelation, he's the one who's the eternal son, the one who has been with the Father forever past, 
the one who is now with the Father and will be with the Father and in heaven forever future. In fact, if we read on in verse 6, what do we see? Right, it's the words of the Alpha and the Omega, right, the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, right, the beginning and the end. Right, technically, this is called a merism. Right? The ending shows you the completion of it. Jesus is the, the one who speaks these words, has been there forever. And therefore, isn't he the best place to tell us what is trustworthy and true? The God of eternity has come to us to give us his word. They are trustworthy and true. And so then we must respond to the true words of God. Now read with me, starting from the middle of verse 6. <clears throat> to the thirsty I will give you, uh, I'll give from the spring of, start again. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. <clears throat> I love it how God describes those who trust in his word as those who thirst for water. Right, there, is, there is a longing, isn't there, for the word uh, that is like the longing for life itself. Isn't it? It's, like, it's about thirsting for something that you need for life. And indeed, the word of God is life itself. It's the only source of life. I also appreciate how God calls those who trust in him as those who conquer. Right? That there is a, there is a wanting to overcome, wanting to be victorious, wanting to make it to the very end as the reason why they would trust in the Word of God. You see, those who, who know the very end want to hold on to the very end. They want to conquer, they want to battle because they know that it would end up where we will be with God, where God will be with us. On the other hand, in verse 8, we're given this very depressing alternative. For those who don't respond to God, they are those, we are told, who are too cowardly to respond, too afraid not wanting to put up with the hardships of believing in God and committing to Jesus. There are those who choose to be faithless instead, unwilling to trust, choosing to live a life that is detestable to God, living in sin, uh, living as they please, doing whatever they want, right, apart from God. And they were told that rather than the new creation as their destiny, as their future, they will go to the other place of great tragedy, the lake of fire and sulfur, the second death, eternal separation from God. The contrast from in verse 6 to 8 is striking, isn't it? And the call then for response is clear. Which one would you choose? Is it even a choice? Trust in the Word of God. Now, as we've been reading through this chapter, uh, if you remember, we started in verse 1 and 2 with a vision, and then we moved from verse 3 to 8 with a voice. Now, from verse 9 onwards, we return right, to the vision. So if you look uh, down the passage, you'll see that now God isn't done yet. Right? We're showing John uh, this bride of the Lamb, and he isn't done yet. We're showing him the holy city, Jerusalem. Uh, remember, this is what verse 2 was on about, the smashing together of the city and the bride. It seems as if now he wants to zoom in and uh, give us the 17, 18 verses right, focused in on this bride city. Right, that he started off this chapter talking about or showing. You see, there's more that John needs to see, uh, to write down and to tell us even down to today. There's more that we need to know if we're going to be comforted in this life, if we're going to grow in our trust and faithfulness to Jesus, if we're going to persevere right, in living for Jesus and serving in his kingdom. You see, there is something so glorious about this picture of being united with Christ that makes, us the believe, that makes us believers the people of God, that for the rest of this chapter, right, from verse 11 all the way to the end, you get this image stacked upon image, stacked upon image, stacked upon image. It, is, it feels kind of frenetic and, and, and frantic the way that John sees this vision and is furiously trying to describe right, what he sees. Now, it all, comes, it all sounds kind of strange to us, uh, but... If you know your Old Testament well, you would actually be able to understand Revelation quite well, I think. 
right? All the stuff that's in Revelation, all the imagery, uh, imagery uh, is drawn from the Old Testament. It's not new stuff, it's old stuff, right? Old Testament stuff. So one day, perhaps you can read through the Old Testament, uh, maybe not in the one day, but you know, one day you can start reading through all the Old Testament, and you'll understand Revelation a lot better. But it's okay for now. If you don't understand the Old Testament very well yet, let me explain right? some of this imagery because it's beautiful. Uh, if you understand it, it really packs a punch. It's really awesome. First thing, the bright city is beautiful. Right? The bright city is beautiful. You see, it is much more beautiful than Babylon, right? the prostitute city that we've come to know so well over the last month. Right? It's been dominated by the prostitute city Babylon. Babylon, yes, she was externally beautiful. She was decked out in gold and jewels and pearls. But you see, the bride city has the radiance of the rarest jewels. Right? Verse 11, the, the deep radiance of jasper, which is uh, clear as crystal, which doesn't really make sense because if you were to research what jasper is, is it is radiant, opaque crystal, yet it is clear as crystal. And then later on in verse 18, uh, when the wall and the city are described, it is described in this great bejeweled detail. But you get a sense, don't you, that John has kind of hit the limits of his earthly vocabulary. Uh, can you hear how he's struggling, right, to describe what's going on? Have a look at verse 18. Right, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, don't imagine that, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall, the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, and then he pretty much lists down every jewel that he can possibly think of. And then he says that the gates were made of pearls, a singular pearl. So you've got this gate that's round, big. How do you roll it? You roll it open, right? Can you see, you try to imagine the, the, the thing he's describing. You can't, he, he's, he's struggling. And you don't blame him for struggling because he's, he's talking about a reality, about a, a vision, about a, a, a something so glorious that it cannot be described fully in human words. And so he's floundering for, uh, for ways to describe the, the absolute and sheer beauty of this city. It is uniquely and indescribably and incomparably beautiful. Right? There is no place on this earth that you can ever go to that can ever match the beauty of this bright city. Right now that we can travel again, you can go to the Great Barrier Reef if you're here in Queensland. You can fly to, you know, whatever, the, the Northern Lights. Go to Japan. Right? You can go there again now, apparently. Or you, go to Bahamas or something, but you'll never find anywhere as beautiful as the new creation. And especially you'll never find anything, uh, you, you, the, the beauty of Babylon, which is the immediate context. This is the contrast, isn't it? This bride city is contrasted to Babylon, the one that pretends to be beautiful, but really is just disgusting and vile, like a swine with pearls, compared to the bride city of God. That's the city you want to be a part of. It's beautiful. Secondly, the bright city belongs to God's people. It belongs to God's people. Now, have a glance over verses 12 to 17. There's a lot of details about walls and gates and foundations. But what you'll notice is that the number 12, it dominates, doesn't it? The number 12. Uh, the 12 tribes of Old Testament Israel, the 12 apostles of the New Testament, is a symbolic number for the entirety of God's people. Uh, and their names are inscribed on the gates of the wall, in the wall and on the foundations of the wall. And as you read on, you see this city is massive, right? It's shaped as a cube, right? Length, width, and height, right? All equal. That's what a cube is. Uh, and they we're told that the, the dimensions of the length, width, and height is 12,000 stadia. Now, if you were to Google it, I think 12,000 stadia is equivalent to about 2,400 kilometers. Right, in the measurements that we would understand. Uh, so imagine a city, right, 2,400 kilometers long, which is basically here to Adelaide, I think. It's about 2,400 kilometers, maybe a bit less. 2,400 kilometers wide, and then 2,400 kilometers high. Have you ever seen a wall? Have you ever seen a mountain that is 2,400 kilometers high? Right, there's this cubic city, it's massive. But once again, it's not about us converting it to, to measurements that we understand. The point here is the symbolism of the numbers. Number 12, the, the symbolic number of God's people, or the, the number symbolizing the people of God, times 1,000, right? The bigger the number of bigness and of magnitude in Revelation, right? This is a massive city full of the people of God, all of the people of God. That's what I'm trying to convey, right? From the very first people of God, thousands 
of years ago, all the way through the New Testament down to us, in the entirety of the people of God, all who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus, have their names written in the book of life. They will have their names inscribed into the gates and the walls and the foundations of this bride city. Now, there's one more really amazing detail there that I want to spend a couple of minutes on, right? Steve wrote quite a bit about this, and I took it on as well, and I want to make it even more awesome because it's really cool, okay? And you may not uh, get this when you read it on your own, but here it is, right? Now, as you know, there are 12 gates right, along these massively long walls. So, you know, the gates are on the, the length and width. So you've got three that are, are east to you, okay? So east-facing uh, gates. There are three north-facing gates. No, north will be this way then, right? Uh, North-facing gates, three south-facing gates, and then three west-facing gates. Okay, so you've got these 12 gates. Um, and uh, we have we told in verse 25, have a look at verse 25, that these 12 gates are never shut. Uh, they're always open. Now, back in the Garden of Eden, um, the original place where God dwelt with his people, there was one entrance. And we know this because when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they were kicked out eastwards, weren't they? And the cherubim with the swords prevented them from entering back. You fast forward to when the tabernacle and the, the temple were built, and it had the same uh, entrance point, right? The east-facing gate was the only entrance into the temple. So you entered through the temple, then you entered into the holy place through the east-facing door, and then you entered through the curtain, which was on the east side of the Holy of Holies. And so the great high priest of Israel, once a year, will be able to go in from this east gate, this east door, into through the east curtain, or the only curtain, to come into the very presence of God, right? to do the sacrifices, to cleanse, to purify the people of God. But then he'll be kicked out. And it'll be like the reenactment of Eden all over again. The people of God cannot dwell in the presence of the holy God. They're always being kicked out, so it seems, right? Out through the east entrance. Do you get it? This city of God has 12 gates on every side, and they're never closed. You get it? You get goosebumps? Right? It, it, what is it symbolizing? It's, it's symbolizing total unrestricted access right, to God. The, the longings of all humanity, right, to know God intimately, right, it is fulfilled in this holy city. And there are times in life where we feel like we are connected to God. Uh, there are times where we feel His presence and we want more of it and we can't get it because we are unholy people, sinful people live in a broken world. But that longing of our heart's desires, our eternal desires to be with our Maker, our Creator, our God, our Savior in the holy city, in the bride city, it will be fulfilled. You and I will have forever access, full access, without barriers, without restrictions, without ever being kicked out the east door to God. And so then, finally, and I think best of all, which is point C here, 3C, the bride city is where God and the Lamb are. Right? We return to this crucial point. The bride city is where God and the Lamb are. The reason why heaven is good is because God is there. We must know this. Any conception of heaven without God at the very center, at the very heart and if you want to be French about it, without the reason, he's not the reason de tour, right? The reason for existence. If heaven isn't about God, right at the center of it all, then you fail to understand the goodness of heaven, right? Eternal life is good, not because it's long, right? If it was eternal life of the life I'm living now, I would not want to be there. My life now is painful. But eternal life is good because it is with God. <clears throat> you see, the bright city at its most basic, at its very core, is taught to us in verse 11. Right? It has the glory of God. Have you seen that? Verse 11, verse, it has the glory of God. That's why it's so beautiful. That's why it's so good. Verse 22 to 27 tells us, uh, interestingly, the things that will not be there. And it's the absence of these things which emphasize and highlight why God is so glorious and good. So let's have a look, right? There are three things that aren't there in 20, 22 to 27 as we finish this chapter. Firstly, the temple is not there. Because God and the Lamb are wholly present. There's no need to go to a physical temple of God to see God because we have total unrestricted access to the eternal God, our Creator, and to the Lamb, our Savior. No temple. 
There is no need for a sun or moon to shine light. This, I hope, is a very familiar imagery to you. You see, the light that comes from the sun and the moon, they express, don't they, the light of life and of knowledge. If you were to flip back through the Bible, right, light is symbolic of life and knowledge. Right? To, to have light is to live and to know the truth. To be in darkness is to be dead, to be lost, and to be living in deception. But the Lamb is the light of life and truth in this new creation. You see, in Him and in Him alone, we have life. And we have it to the absolute fullest. It's not going to be some dull, mundane life there because we have Jesus as our light of life and truth. We will experience life to the absolute fullest. And finally down in verse 27, we see that nothing unclean will be in the bride city. Nothing unclean. Nothing and no one who is detestable or false. Nothing and no one who can ever spoil the perfection and goodness of eternal life. None of those things, none of those people will be allowed in. Because the most holy God and the almighty Christ, by their very presence and power, will prevent any of that stuff, sin, evil, any stain to enter to spoil this new creation. And so what we see here is a place where there is full access to God, the full experience of life, the full and forever immunity from anything bad or sad, all because, this is the key, the God, God and the Lamb are there. That's the only reason why heaven is good, because God and the Lamb are there. So let's pull all these things together to finish. Now, what is your view of heaven? I asked you that at the beginning, and maybe you had an, an image that came to mind. Uh, and how does it compare to what you've heard from God's Word today? How does it compare? You see, if we have a weak or a wrong understanding of heaven, you see, we'll struggle, won't we, to long for and find comfort in knowing what heaven has in store for us. We won't, how would it impact our day-to-day life if we have a weak or wrong view of heaven? How would it ever be able to grow our trust in Jesus and in God's Word? And how would it cause us to persevere and to conquer in our living for Jesus and serving His eternal kingdom? You see, we're bound for creation that will be completely renewed, right? God guarantees it. And so the first thing we need to say is that we can draw comfort from that right now today. To know that God, at the very end, will personally wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will will heal every hurt that we've ever experienced. I wonder whether that brings you comfort. Can you imagine how that might bring you comfort if you really believe that now, today, in your griefs and sorrows? To know that all that you go through now Right? It will be an everlasting comfort to come. Can you draw upon that now? Aren't we brought to tears in so many ways today? Whether they are the hurtful or broken relationships that we, that we are in, or the deep disappointments and hurts that we face, the regrets, the emotional and physical pain and suffering, and death. And isn't there so much death around us? Now, Steve wrote in his sermon, and I will quote, because it's about him, uh, I have calendar reminders to help me remember big milestones. Obviously, my wedding anniversary is there, good husband, as well as the birthdays of all my children, a good father. Uh, but also in that calendar are the anniversaries of the death of loved ones. Each year, I'm reminded of that family or friend who lost someone. And as sad as these reminders are, I quite like them. They remind me powerfully that one day all of that sadness will be wiped away personally by God. Every goodbye is grieved. Sorry. <coughs> Memory of my daughter just came back. <coughs> um, my, my third daughter passed away um, when she was very young. So, <coughs> Every goodbye is grieved by the hope of this future day. They remind me powerfully that one day, all of the sadness will be wiped away personally by God. Every goodbye is grieved, but in hope of this future day. (laughs) 
that was pretty sudden. <laughs> I haven't thought about Abby too much recently, but yeah. Now, I said this uh, comes your way. May you also know this future day. All right, may this future day be as big as what Revelation says it is. And draw comfort from that. Trust that this is the truth that helps you through your sufferings today. Now, which leads us then to our second application point, which is to do with trust. Now, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord Jesus is trustworthy and true. Now, I don't want to say too much more about this. I've already talked about it before in the, early in the sermon. But once again, I want to say, I want to invite you, if you are someone who has not yet put your trust in Jesus, uh, would you come and speak to me later or during the week? Uh, I would love to know why that is. Like, what is it that you're still searching for? What is it that you still need to know about? How can I help you, perhaps, if you want to be helped, to be able to come to put your trust in Jesus? Now, for those of us that do trust in Jesus, praise God. And my simple encouragement to you is to just keep trusting, to grow in your faith and in your conviction every day. Don't let it wane or don't let it wander. Don't let the brokenness and the hurts and the pains of this life, don't let persistent sinfulness make your faith shake and wonder. Now, the best way to do that is to keep going to God every day. Right? It's a simple thing. Go to God every day. What does that mean? Well, you go to God through His Word, so you go to His Word every day. You go to God in prayer, you pray to Him every day, you pray for yourself, you pray for other people, you praise Him. You go to God every day by talking about Him and about Jesus and about the gospel to your family and to your friends, to believers and unbelievers alike. So you see, the more that you engage with your faith, right, the more you'll grow in it. It's as simple as that, isn't it? But if God is never there in your mind and in your heart on a day-to-day basis, then how will you ever grow? And how would you ever hold on? The view of heaven to come hopefully will drive you to keep trusting right, in the Word of God. And finally, persevere. Or in the words of Revelation, conquer. Right? Be victorious to the very end. Teens, and this is Steve's words, right? He wants you to hear this, those of you who are part of SALT, uh, or if you're not part of SALT, then you're definitely going to hear this. Right? Persevere in making Friday night at Bible study a priority in your life. Don't give in to the temptation of study and assignments and or sport or music. Don't build the habit of saying no to fellowship because of your studies or other interests. And this is Steve's exact words, right? If your parents are pushing you to skip salt or church, let Steve know. <laughs> and he will personally have a word with your parents. That's what he says here, okay? Good on you, Steve, right? So if someone is stopping you from growing your faith and persevering in Christ, tell Steve if you're a teen. Or tell me. Or tell that person, stop it. Right? I want to grow. I want to serve. Students, and there's many of you in this congregation, persevere knowing Jesus more in this time of your life. Look, everyone tells you this, you're probably sick of hearing it, all these old people telling you that life gets harder and more busy. Life gets harder and more busy. Right? I'm an old person, I'll tell you that. The uni days are the easiest days, I feel. You have enough maturity and freedom to do everything you want, but you have all the time in the world to do everything you want. Things get harder. You may get married, you may not. You may or may not have children. Things get busy, your work will pile up. There'll be more responsibility. So now's the time. Max out. In the universities you go to, all the ones around here, they all have great Christian groups. There are Bible talks. There are people that you can meet up with to read the Bible, to evangelize, to get into it. Now's the time. All the Christians, you've got to keep persevering as, persevering as well, right? So keep conquering for Jesus all the way to the end. Getting older right, isn't an excuse right, for being slacker. Can I say that? Is that too disrespectful? I said it in the most respectful way, okay? You know, as we get older, we get more mature. We're supposed to be more productive, not less. Yes, life gets busier and harder, but with the maturity that we are building, shouldn't we be more fervent? Shouldn't we find ways to, to serve more uh, as we can to, to shape family life and work life around church life and spiritual life? Doesn't the Bible say to older brothers and sisters, older men and women, fulfill your responsibility to be examples to younger believers in the faith? Now, especially as you get towards retirement and in retirement, isn't it as you get less busy with life's work, maybe it's a chance for that second wind right, to serve God. Things are certainly busy and tough in older adulthood, but it's all the more reason why we need to persevere and conquer.
And then finally, a word to the parents. There are a few parents in this crowd here, so I'll say the, the, these words. It is tiring and exhausting to be a parent, isn't it? Uh, but please keep opening your Bible with your kids, even when they don't seem interested. Uh, this is something I've got to say to myself. Faith is the one who perseveres in this with our children. I'm the one more likely to give up when they're not interested. And so I'm so glad for the example of faith in my marriage, in my home, to see someone who perseveres with the children, uh, as well as in other aspects of family life and ministry. Now, whatever situation that you're in, I think you might know what it means for you in your stage of life, in your responsibilities, in your capacities, to be able to persevere in serving Christ. Friends, the glorious, the utterly good and renewed creation awaits us. Let that view of heaven be the view of heaven that you take with you through life. Not some wrong or anemic view, but one that can actually comfort you through life, one that can actually grow your faith, one that can actually help you to persevere. Let me pray that God would speak right into our very hearts and shape our lives in the coming days and weeks as we let his word see it through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word. We thank you for this beautiful chapter of scripture, which many of us are familiar with, but perhaps it hasn't yet quite shaped our view of what the new creation will really be like. First and foremost, Father, we pray that you'll help us see that the best thing about heaven, in fact, the, the only good thing about heaven is that you will be there. And because you will be there, your son will be there, the Holy Spirit will be there, that means that all uh, that is good in life and that all that is good in eternity is there with you. We thank you that in this new creation, we will have unrestricted and full access to you. Even as we live life now, we yearn to be connected to our creator. Even as we yearn to know you and, and to, to have that fullness of life, of, of to be spiritually fulfilled and, 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 and filled up, that will be the reality of heaven as we see you face to face. We thank you that in heaven there will be this unbroken connection. We thank you that that then means that there will be a, a life without pain and without suffering because there will be no sin. There will be no suffering there. Please expand our view of heaven that is to come so that today, right now, we will be able to draw comfort in our suffering and sorrows, that we will grow in our faith and trust in the word of God, and that we will persevere in serving Christ and living for him. For this we pray in his most precious name. Amen.